What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and today we've got two stories to discuss. The first is on the ESG of the shipping industry, the vital artery of our economy. And the second is about the trillion-dollar shadow investing industry that is family investment offices. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. Much of the world's shipping happens via our waterways, and one of the main shipping routes is a 45,000 kilometer trip from Asia to Europe. For this trip, a ship usually starts off in China, where it moves through the Arabian Sea, through the Suez Canal, out into the Mediterranean Sea, and eventually ends up in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, the biggest port in Europe, where it is then moved in various ways around the world. That is, when the route is actually open and unless you were really nowhere on the internet this week you are already aware that the Suez Canal a vital artificial sea level waterway in Egypt connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea through the Isthmus of Suez was blocked by a massive ship called the Ever Given the blockage has been removed apparently all the memes put the workers into overdrive but the incident gave us a good excuse to discuss the marine shipping industry in general because marine shipping accounts for about 80 to 90 percent of the world's shipping and boats have gotten massive some are a quarter mile long and carry tens of thousands of shipping containers there are a host of various different ownership schemes environmental issues and labor rights questions involved in marine shipping and you can think of all the ships that were waiting for the sewer blockage to clear as many ESG vessels that we can explore today. First is the governance issue. Who actually owns all the boats that are on the water? Okay, so in the shipping industry, you have a number of different players that own, operate, and contract with the ships. So that's actually supposed to be SK Kim. She covers the marine shipping industry for us and was going to be our ESG guide today. But due to a corrupted file, I had to ask one of my colleagues to read SK's transcript. So this is kind of SK, but also not really SK. For example, that ship in the Suez Canal was named Evergiven, but it was operated by a Taiwanese company called Evergreen Marine. And it's owned by a Japanese company called Shoei Kaisen Kaisha. And to add another layer of regional complexity onto the ship, that ship is registered in Panama. So sorting out who is responsible for the insurance claims and who bears the responsibility for this uh, Suez Canal fiasco is probably going to take some time. And there will likely be a lot of infighting. If the owner or operator is a public traded company, we cover it. And of the marine transport companies we cover, a majority of those are actually family-owned, meaning a family is a dominant shareholder for the company. And that seems kind of fitting. Shipbuilding, ship operating, it feels like a passed-down tradition type kind of job. But in reality, what this means is that investors, other investors outside of the family that don't have the family shares, basically, they can't really register any discontent because their shares don't have the same voting rights as the family-owned shares do. That's why it's a family-controlled company. So they kind of have to go with the captains of the ship, other investors do. So as SK said, this Japanese company, Shoei, which is actually not publicly traded, even though Evergreen is, is owned by a shipbuilding company called Imabari Shipbuilding Company. And Imabari has been building bigger and bigger ships in recent years, in part to keep up with demand, but also because bigger ships are less carbon intense. Remember, 
carbon intensity is the amount of carbon released by a company per dollar of sales. So the bigger the ship, the more the sales, and the less the carbon intensity. And that's good for the shipping industry because as all those boats were sitting around the canal, as all these boats moved through our oceans, they have a lot of environmental emissions being put both into the air and into the water. The shipping industry is a heavy polluter. So to put that into perspective, each year the industry releases more carbon dioxide than Germany and France combined. Now, to combat this, the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, uh, has implemented stringent environmental policies, translating into uh, higher compliance costs for many shipping companies. Now, some of those policies have to do with the amount of sulfur that can be used in shipping fuel. The IMO said that in um, you know, emission control areas, uh, ships can have 0.1% by mass of sulfur in their fuel. And outside of these areas um, that are still regulated, they can have only um, uh, 0.5 sulfur uh, by mass. What that means for a company like Evergreen that operates the Ever Given is that it has to install scrubbers on its feet if it wants to not be fined by the IMO. Now, Evergreen has done that on about 95% of its fleet. Um, the scrubbers, you know, when you turn them on, uh, will remove harmful elements from the boat's uh, exhaust gases, which is great, uh, you know, but as you can imagine, those scrubbers aren't cheap to operate. So companies turn them off when they're outside of the areas that um, are, 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 are regulated. And unfortunately, that Suez Canal uh, is one of those areas. So when SK's voice actor there said 95%, what she meant was 75%. 75% of evergreen ships have scrubbers installed. But the thing is, for Egypt, which operates the Suez Canal, Egypt has not ratified the IMO convention to limit sulfur content in maritime fuel. So they allow any ship to use what kind of fuel they want, regardless if it's heavy in sulfur. And Egypt is likely not going to require companies to use scrubbers in the future. And if scrubbers aren't required, they will likely be turned off. A lot of maritime companies have said to adhere to these regulations, it's going to cost them billions of dollars. And that's because there are all these emission control areas around the world. There's some in the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, and the parts of the Atlantic and the Pacific that are under the territorial control of the U.S. and Canada. And there's talk of making the Mediterranean Sea part of these emission control areas, which would then affect the Suez Canal. But as of now, nothing has changed. And so you might be thinking, well, I know sulfur is bad biblically, but why is sulfur such a big deal in fuel? Well, to put it into context, at the moment for cars and trucks on the road, they can only have 0.001% of sulfur in their fuel. What shipping has had traditionally is 3.5% of sulfur, and sulfur causes sulfur oxide emissions, and those create acid rain, they create pollution, and they cause premature death in coastal cities and in marine life. And so what the EU, what regulators are trying to do is they're trying to bring down the sulfur content in marine fuel to a more manageable level, to 0.5% or 0.1%. And so what you have to look at now as an investor or as an individual just paying attention to the marine transport industry is what companies have exposure to these areas that are going to enforce the sulfur content cap. They are more exposed to fuel standards than other companies, and they are going to have to deal with these increased costs from limiting their sulfur emissions. So due to COVID-19, a lot of ship owners are postponing or canceling the installation of scrubbers that extract those harmful sulfur emissions. But let's go back to the Suez Canal and let's look at Evergiven, which is, again, 
the ship operated by Evergreen that blocked the Suez Canal, Evergiven was retrofitted with scrubbers. But as we noted earlier, because the Suez Canal is not one of those protected areas, and because scrubbers are kind of expensive to run, it's likely that while it was idling, Evergiven did not have its scrubbers on. So we can kind of assume, can't be sure, but we can assume that that docking in the Suez Canal was pretty environmentally damaging. And this is a big problem for the shipping industry. It has an ambitious plan to cut its emissions intensity by 40% by 2040. But environmental watchdogs have noted that intensity reductions aren't enough. They're calling on the industry to cut their total absolute emissions by half by 2050. Regardless, whether or not a boat complies with regulations could depend on how well the ship's crew is managed. And usually a crew or a workforce in general is more apt to follow company regulations if they are kept safe. An important distinction for the marine industry that is one of the most dangerous sectors that we cover. Now, ship companies, operators, uh, uh, usually use contracted workforces, which means you have to look at what a company's subcontractor management program looks like. Uh, there's a marine transport company called Kunin Nagel. They're a Swiss company um, that has around 93,000 employees. It conducts safety trainings uh, and certifies some of its operations to global safety standards such as ISO 45001. And because of that, we can reasonably assume that uh, any of the ships that were stuck around the Suez Canal that were operated by Nagel likely had those policies uh, aimed at reducing employee injury. Now compare that to a company like Costco Shipping Holdings, uh, a Chinese shipping company. It doesn't really have any of those safety policies that Nagel has. Uh, and you can see that between 2018 and 2019, the company reported 178 employee accidents, including one fatality. Now Evergreen is like uh, Costco. It's at the bottom quartile for health and safety. Uh, and, you know, we know that the workers on Evergreen's ships were contractors from India. So it's really difficult for us to know if any of those employees were covered under safety policies during the long transit from Asia to Europe due to lack of transparency on this. OK, just for fun, let's list out all the countries that we have talked about as being involved in operating Evergiven, the Evergreen ship that blocked the Suez Canal. We have a parent company in Japan that is not publicly traded, an operator in Taiwan that is publicly traded, a Panama-based registration, and a lot of employees from India that are contractors. It's a sort of web of different players that can make assessing the ESG risks for investors a bit difficult. But understanding those risks and opportunities, obviously, are important, mainly due to the vital role marine shipping plays in our increasingly online and globalized economy. And disruption in normal shipping routes the sort of disruptions a blocked ship can cause or increased extreme weather events due to climate change uh, or a global pandemic can cause can really disrupt our economy in incredibly diverse ways. You can have Kansas City farmers that are struggling to send soybeans to buyers in Asia. You can have Chinese manufacturers that have products from North America that are piling up on their factory floors. You can have containers that carried medical supplies to countries in Africa and South America left abandoned because shipping carriers have concentrated their vessels on the most popular routes, those linking North America and Europe to Asia. All that is connected to the troubles in the shipping industry. And I haven't even gotten into this thing called ballast waters. And that's these waters under the boats that help keep the boat buoyant, but also trap and travel all these different organisms from one port to the other. It's a huge biodiversity risk that in 2017, 
regulators tried to deal with by passing a law limiting the use and dumping of ballast water. Now, whether or not that worked is still to be seen, but it's still a biodiversity risk that it goes undiscussed in many areas of the economy. It really is true that the marine transport sector is this unseen artery that connects all of us together, whether we want to be or not. When you hear a family investment office, it lulls you into a false sense of security. It sounds kind of quaint. It sounds like money is managed by some bespectacled person wearing flannel and sipping tea or something like that. But in the investment world, family offices have become the hedge funds of the 1980s and 90s, managing huge sums of money and taking risks that have gone wrong can create turmoil in the markets. They're also like hedge funds because they're not really regulated at the moment. They don't have to register and as an investment advisor, or fiduciary, a regulatory definition that, among other things, tries to ensure that people that are managing money do it in a safe and equitable manner. Investment banks, on the other hand, are supposed to be highly regulated. They have to have risk management teams and security policies, and, and, and they have to ensure that they don't take bets that might topple our fragile economy. So it was weird when this week it was discovered that major investment banks like Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, MUFG, Normira, and UBS had taken massive bets on swaps with a family office called Archegos. By the way, that's a Greek word for leader, or if you are biblical, can also mean Christ. So Archegos runs money on behalf of Bill Huang. And Bill Huang is his former hedge fund manager, and this week everyone found out that all these banks had entered into tens of billions of dollars of leverage on swaps with Archegos, and those swaps had just imploded, and Huang might have lost more money than anyone has ever in the history of losing money, and the banks have been left with the bag, and the economy is threatened, and everyone is asking basically where the oversight was. Uh, and we're actually also asking that. So to answer that for us, I called up Nigel Fletcher, a colleague who covers ESG risks at banks for us. It raises questions about sort of the, the balance between sort of the risk management and the appetite for sort of risky trading activities to generate uh, profits at the banks. And the banks would have or kind of should have known the extent of their individual exposure to the fund, but they may not have been aware of the exposure that the client had taken with other banks. And that's where it kind of raises the questions that were the banks asking the client the right question? Or were the banks just kind of going along for the ride and trying to make money with someone they thought could make them a lot of money? But really, the reason banks didn't know what was going on with the person they were lending billions to is because many family offices have adopted the moves of hedge funds in that they use leverage or debt to basically borrow funds from a prime broker and then they make money with those funds. And what they do is they usually enter into what are called total return swaps. The total return swaps that sort of were the derivative instruments in this case, I mean, these are essentially their sort of contracts that they're brokered by the banks that allow uh, a client to take on the profit and loss of a portfolio of stocks or other assets in exchange for a fee. So it essentially it sort of allows the investor to take a larger position while posting sort of limited funds up front. So they're sort of borrowing from the bank and then the underlying security is owned by the bank. But what this does is it makes a bank on the hook for a risky investor's 
problems. And since there's no public disclosure requirements for family offices, if banks don't do their due diligence, they might not realize that they're entering into a trade with a firm like Archegos that has already had leveraged bets all over the world that total billions of dollars. And they might also not realize that they're entering trades with someone like Bill Huang, who has committed wire fraud, settled illegal trading charged with the SEC in 2012 for millions, and was banned in 2014 from trading in Hong Kong. Regardless of what this does is it raises the question for investors about how investment banks are actually conducting due diligence because all these banks already had multiple controversies relating to business ethics, which were indicating gaps between policies and implementation. So I want to know from Nigel what this might do to the investment banks going forward if, if they have to lose billions due to these kind of shadowy secret trades by these investment banks. Is that going to change anything material for these companies? It may make them, sorry, more risk adverse. So they may be less willing to do maybe these transactions with those family offices without kind of making sure they're doing their due diligence or asking the correct questions to sort of be comfortable there. I also think kind of from like a investor standpoint, I would expect that when on the Q1 conference calls, that there'll probably be a lot of questions around sort of the risk management. And I think in particular, you see sort of a contrasting story, because from from the news and from press releases that the banks have been put out, some of the banks were able to sort of exit their positions and take sort of minimal losses, whereas a couple of the banks had to put out profit warnings and say, this has the potential to be a significant loss loss for us. So it's just kind of questions in terms of why were some banks able to exit those positions um, quicker and sort of limiting their sort of the losses while other ones were kind of maybe were they slower to react? So that's why they weren't able to exit or were they not hedged correctly in the first place? There are investigations ongoing that will hopefully answer some of those questions for us. But what we now see is that there is a massive systemic risk in the banking industry. There is this shadow part of the industry that seems to be basically unregulated, but there are a bunch of companies like Archegos that are managing trillions of dollars of investments. And if Archegos can explode and cause this kind of a situation, so can another family office. All right, that's it for the week. I want to thank SK and Nigel for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. I enjoy seeing the feedback. And don't forget to subscribe. Stay safe out there and have a great rest of the week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. 
Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.